best advice and life lessons podcast which are my experiments with curiosity about the best and the brightest anywhere in this podcast i focus on extracting best advice and life lessons from world class performers and leaders by deconstructing and teasing out their stories success habits secrets and best advice or life lessons that they have ever received that you can use and apply to your own life and work today i'm thrilled to have ravi venkatesan on the show his book talks and ideas resonate pretty well with the show's theme of best advice and life lessons so please bear with me as i introduce ravi and his impressive background career and accomplishments ravi is the board chair of global alliance global energy alliance for people and planet a trustee of rockefeller foundation founder of global alliance for mass entrepreneurship a coalition which aims to create 10 million entrepreneurs in india by the year 2030 he was previously the chairman of microsoft india i work for microsoft by the way uh chairman of board of bank of baroda and co-chairman of the board of infosys he is also the unicef special representative for young people and innovation ravi has a btech from iit bombay an ms from purdue and mba from harvard business school he was voted as one of india's best management thinkers and microsoft alumni hero in the year 2020 he is the author of two best selling books conquering the chaos in india and his latest book what the heck do i do with my life welcome to the show ravi let's play ball <laughs> thanks shrini um really looking forward to this conversation i have so much to talk to you about ravi and i'm sure we'll run out of time so let's jump right in right off the bat i want to ask about something that's been on my mind and i'm sure it's on the mind of many listeners as well for someone who has the kind of resume that you do do you have any insecurities at all ravi i know it's all relative in terms of accomplishments but uh, have you felt inadequate and insecure in your life what advice do you have for the rest of us regarding career envy and uh, career regrets well actually i think the truth of the matter is a lot of high achievers if not most high achievers are both ridden with insecurities and driven or propelled by their insecurity and while i'd like to think i'm an exception i don't think i am i'm pretty much the stereotype of this now a little bit of insecurity about you know whether you're successful or not is okay it's normal it's healthy it's, you know it drives your ambition etc but beyond a point i think it's dysfunctional and can make you not just you know paralyzed it can be disabling but it can also make you really unhappy and anxious and so forth and i think when i look back there was a long period when my insecurity was actually very high so um you know i go back to my childhood shrini where i had a very unpromising start as a kid i was uh, very very introverted and shy and underconfident not good at studies terrible at sports hardly had any friends and my mother used to get really frustrated and her way of showing love was to say you'll never amount to anything 
And yeah, it made a huge impression on me as a kid. And I'd spent, I think, the next 50 years of my life trying to just prove that I was okay. Um, and, you know, like a lot of high achievers, I got on a treadmill of, um, you know, achievement, treadmill of achievement, success. And the problem is, with that treadmill is beyond a point, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's really, really uh, unhealthy. And so I realized this about 2010. I must have been about 47 years old. And I said, look, this is, uh, this is really bad. I need to jump off it. And that's when I left Microsoft. And I said, I'm going to try my hand at my own things. And it has taken me nearly 10 years to work out <clears throat> this, this insecurity about my own success and so forth. One, I write a lot about this in one of the chapters in my book. So anybody who's also suffering from this might <laughs> benefit from reading directly <laughs> chap chapter eight of the book. But um, yeah, one of the more influential books in the last few years has been by a Buddhist monk. And it's called um, Being Nobody, Going Nowhere. Okay, very powerful book. And I finally realized, hey, look, we're all okay. You don't have to be successful. You don't have to change, improve in order to, you know, you're, we're all fine as we are. And I also realized reading that book and doing a lot of meditation that this, this whole sort of quest to be relevant is a complete delusion. The truth is, you know, none of us are really relevant. Almost nobody is relevant. And, you know, I was thinking as we were as a, uh, coming into this podcast conversation, I think about really amazingly successful people who, you know, dominated our, the conversation, imagination, even a few years ago, and where are they today? So I think about Steve Ballmer, our good friend, right? Helped uh, build Microsoft to what it is. He retired in 2016. Today, who thinks about Steve Ballmer? Who talks about him? And so my point is, it doesn't matter how famous or successful you are in any field. When you're off the stage, you're quickly forgotten. That's just the nature of the world. So I that came as a huge relief for me. Okay, And for the last few years, I no longer think about this issue of being relevant and so on and so forth. So anyway, long answer to your question. Uh, I think high achievers are almost invariably driven by a high degree of insecurity. And I think, uh, you know, it's important to cure yourself often. The other thing I want to say, Srini, is, you know, you, re you introduced me in all these sort of glowing terms. And you're basically reading my CV. And it struck me that a CV, while, while it's not a lie, is only a partial truth. You know, what my CV, what you read out, fails to convey is <laughs> all the struggles, the setbacks, yeah. the failures, and all those things, which are, you know, really a big part of the of the total story. And so what we do is project this false illusion of, you know, um, what success looks like. And it leaves people feeling even more insecure. My God, I've got to be like that. So I want to say, look, <laughs> life is full of ups and downs, and that's okay. No, that's awesome. I I know that behind all the 
accomplishments you have, I'm sure you have these multiple levels of failure that doesn't show up. And because behind every success, there is like multiple. Sure. Success is nothing but a series <clears throat> of failures, right? I mean, so it's a, it's a um, progression as we go. So Ravi, just one more thing that you talk about in your book, talking about that chapter, right? You talk about crucible experiences, which actually makes made you as well. Uh, what exactly is that? And are there any practical advice that you have to get such an experience at an young age, or is it is it really you let things lose on its own, or do you define crucible experiences? How do you? Lovely do question. You, um, but before I answer that, I just want to say one thing. I think the word failure is a very powerful word. I prefer to use the word setback. Okay, sure. because I think that there is only one thing that constitutes failure, which is giving up. Um, and if you think of about it it's as setbacks that you have in quest of something, then it feels a lot less awful. So anyway, uh, sure. Back to your no, no, I was going to say someone said, uh, uh, you know, success is nothing but failure in progress. Yeah, I like that. So anyway, back to crucibles. No, this idea of uh, crucible experiences, which really are the experiences where which develop your character, develop your self-confidence, develop your leadership skills, uh, transformational, and then attract, help you attract amazingly new, bigger opportunities is very important. You know, if you look, I don't know how old you are and, you know, what the median ages of listeners, but if you're about 40 years old and you look back at your life and say, look, how did I get here? Almost invariably, you'll point to three, four transformational experiences, which were fairly challenging at in the moment, but in, in the struggle and, you know, to make your make it a success, you know, amazing things happened. So I look back at my life. What were some of these crucible experiences? I think in 1985, coming to the U.S. as an immigrant to do my graduate studies was a crucible experience. And then I spent the next 10, 12 years of my life establishing myself, um, etc. Then I almost every six or seven years. Uh, rarely by accident, almost always by intention, Srini, I took on a big new challenge. Um, and one of the big challenges, for instance, was coming back to India in 1996 at a time when, you know, India was not particularly uh, an attractive place like it might be today. Um, and I set out to build a very significant uh, venture at the age of 32. And I got that job because nobody else wanted it. Okay, it was it had many daunting characteristics, but that crucible experience transformed me into, I think, a fairly competent business leader with a lot of self-confidence. And that success then attracted, of all people, Microsoft. Said, and you know, I don't think I would have got the Microsoft opportunity, having spent 16 years building diesel engines, but for the success of that, I thought my eight years at Microsoft was also another crucible experience. It was a very, very tough challenge, particularly for me coming from outside the industry. The culture in those days, you were there, was not you know, kind or gentle. <laughs> so 
Yeah, that was a wonderful crucible experience. I think when I look back, my three years helping turn around, transform Bank of Baroda was a crucible experience. So in my book, I say, look, if I, a fairly good a way to approach your professional life is every few years, step outside your comfort zone, take on a whole new big challenge and you know, make a success of it. And that's how I've operated. It served me pretty well. When I look at other people who've, who I'm you know, inspired by, there's some parallels in that. And if you look, I don't know if the Microsoft values have changed, but at least in my years, one of the six core values of the company used to be take on big challenges and see them through. And I think it encapsulates this idea of crucible experiences. Did I reasonably answer your question? Yeah, I, yeah, you absolutely you did. There's one aspect that you touched on, especially which is important, is the notion of mindset and courage. Yeah, um, you talked about hey, the courage to start something, which stepping out of your comfort zone, right? I think I'm a fan of Carol Dweck as you are, and you have her quote right at the outset. Yes. Um, do you? I, I know you talked about your childhood in, in terms of being, you know. Um, how you grew up and perhaps you were not extraordinary, right? Do you really believe ordinary people from a mindset standpoint can go on to accomplish extraordinary things and it's just a matter of mindset, agency, and responsibility? <laughs> um, and on that note, just, another, just one other piece in terms of courage. More often than not, right, courage to start something and the courage to be disliked are so intertwined. Um, we usually do not lack the ability or intelligence, but it's just a lack of courage. It holds us back. Um, how have you overcome that in terms of having the courage to do things in the face of adversity, in the face of doing new things that's been completely unknown, if you will? I mean, even a jump from diesel engines to Microsoft, I can't imagine that's like that's a huge pivot. Yeah, so I think you've asked two questions, which are somewhat related, but they're really quite distinct. So let's start with courage. Some, there's a very nice quote which says that courage is not the absence of fear, but the ability to operate or function despite your fear. And I think it is, frankly, one of the most central qualities of successful people, the um, most fundamental quality of leadership. And courage manifests in different ways, as you said. So, for instance, the courage to take some risk, try new things, knowing that people may laugh at you or you may fail, they may, whatever. So that takes a little bit of courage. I think these days it takes a lot of courage to figure out in any situation, what's the right thing to do rather than what's the easy, convenient thing to do? I think it takes a lot of courage when you suffer a setback or a disappointment or you know some something catastrophic to be able to get up and keep going. Um, I think, as you correctly said, it takes enormous amount of courage to not care so much about what other people think. Okay. And so how do you develop courage? And my own experience is it's like any muscle. The more you use it, 
the stronger it gets. And so my my approach has been if I'm afraid of some, if I have some fear. Th then. Very consciously to lean into it. And then you find, oops, it's gone. So when I was very little, Srini, I was terrified of the dark. OK, I used to be scared of dark rooms because there may be ghosts or bad things out there and so <laughs> forth. So I would always expect my someone else to put on the light before going into a dark room. And then one day I said, this is ridiculous. And I remember this. I said, I'm going to go sit in the dark room and see what happens. And that was the end of it. D disappeared. So when you talk about this courage to take on new things, knowing you may fail or people may not necessarily approve, the best way to develop this is to repeatedly to, to do it. And that's what I've done over the last decade. Uh, I've tried new things, whether or not anybody approved, cared. I didn't, I, I really don't bother that much anymore. So that's what I'd say about courage. I think you asked an equally important or even more important about mindset, right? What is mindset? Mindset is the set of beliefs or assumptions we have about everything, about the world, how it works, about each other, most of all about ourselves. And these stories are like the iceberg. Most of it is below the water. We're not even conscious or aware of these stories and beliefs, but they profoundly shape whatever happens to us. It, it shapes how we engage with others, how we manifest in the world. It our stories about what is success determines what we strive for or don't strive for. Um, and so I use this quote that, uh, you know, from Bill, Bill Gates it says, uh, what you believe is what you achieve. And so I've devoted a whole chapter of my book to the idea of mindset and how do you become more intentional about different as different types of mindset and then the beautiful thing is like software. It's you can rewrite it, you can reprogram it, right? So growth mindset is one aspect, and I think pretty much all the listeners to your podcast are likely to have already be familiar with this growth mindset and how, how. And then I talk a lot about the sense of agency. You know, two of the worst mindsets I've seen is one is a victim mindset, and the other one is an entitlement mindset. Victim mindset means when something bad happens, then essentially you look for someone else to blame. And it's usually your mom, your spouse, your manager. Some, If you're Hindu, then it'll be the planets and the stars or something like that. Whereas a sense of agency saying, look, yeah, maybe there are things outside my control, but let me focus on what I can control. And that's empowering. So how do you focus on these different assumptions we have and make them explicit and then work on changing them is the subject of one chapter, which I think is frankly one of the most important chapters in my book. And I give examples from my own life of when I found that where things were not going the way I wished, I began to in inspect what, what is it about my own assumptions which I need to change? How am I contributing to this situation? So. You know, I, I give an example of my beliefs about people and early in my career as a manager, I used to think most people don't want to work, don't want to be uh, held accountable, and so you need to micromanage them. And that was quite disastrous. And I had to change my view about people, which I did. So um, anyway, long answer to a, 
important question. No, absolutely. And you talked about uh, growth mindset. Yeah, it is one of the important underpinnings of cultural underpinnings of Microsoft, if you will. And if you know when Satya introduced the concept, right? So uh, super important all the way from in terms of learning new things and being a know-it-all culture versus uh, learn-it-all culture versus know-it-all culture. Yeah, and how you think about um, success and failure is just such an important part of this um, growth mindset. Yeah, Absolutely. and then I, there's also other things which I want to underscore. This whole idea of scarcity versus abundance, abundance. is another mindset, and it's not just about money. It's about time. It's about um, expertise. It's about love. All these things, and I think that's another huge, huge opportunity in in the world today. Totally. So. Moving on, you have another important chapter, Ravi, on leadership, which is one of my favorite subjects as well. I know this is a subject of passion for you, and uh, I especially subscribe to the philosophy, uh, your philosophy in terms of how you call what Laszlo Bach, who used to be at Google, called emergent leadership, which is when there are no anointed leaders, you don't have to have an official title, but when you see something, someone steps up and actually takes an action and does something, right? See something, do something kind of a leadership. Um, what does leadership mean in current environment? And is it different in today's environment than it was? Because the VUCA world is very different. And you talk about, I think your subtext of the book is these uh, turbulent times, how to flourish in the turbulent times, right? Um, so how should one think about leadership? And in this current environment? Well, it's a great question again. I think leadership is the defining issue of this century. If you look at any of the problems that we have at any level, it can be in a, in a com community, in an organization, as a, as a planet, as a country. Um, you know, we have tons of issues. And the really uh, sort of tragic thing is, even something as complex as climate change, right? We have a lot of the solutions, the technology, we have the resources, we have the human talent, and yet the problems get worse and bigger, not better. And come down to why is that? And it's lack of leadership. You don't have the leadership that's able to get all the necessary actors to work together to accomplish something. You take even a very successful company like Microsoft, uh, it's unconstrained in terms of opportunities or, or even resources and talent. Uh, what limits it is, you know, people who can go out there and make things happen, get things done without a lot of instruction. And so it is. So I, so I think this is the defining um, challenge of our times. And therefore, I also call it the one of the super skills or the meta skills. If you have leadership capabilities, you don't really have to worry about what am I going to do next? Do I have to search for my next gig or job? It, they're going to come to you. And the main thing I would say is we have to change our notion of leadership. Typically, what we tend to do is conflate leadership with title or position or power, influence these things, right? And whereas leadership really is nothing more than a behavior or an act. And so 
what is the mistake people make? They say, oh, so and so, Trini is a general manager at Microsoft. He must be a leader, and we'll call you a leader. Maybe you are. I think in this case that might be very apt. But sometimes it's a person who's, you know, the antithesis of leadership. They're political. They don't have courage to make tough decisions. You know, they get by by just not rocking the boat. That's not leadership. And then you will have someone else who is unsung, has no great authority or power. But when something needs to be done, they just go get it done and they're able to get others to work together to accomplish something. And so in my book, I give examples of this model. I give a story of stories after stories of ordinary people accomplishing extraordinary things. And my favorite story is about this young boy who's now now 13, who lives in a municipal garbage dump outside one, one of the Indian cities. And the way in which this boy is, um, you know, rallying his whole, not only other kids in that area, but also the whole community, particularly during COVID. So I, I think we need more and more people now to stop worrying about anything and just lean into the things they care about and provide leadership. And that's the only way we're going to make, create a cons you know, reasonably functioning society, reasonably functioning organizations, etc. And it's also empowering, okay? The point here is if leadership is a behavior or an act, not a title, anybody can be a leader. Everybody can be a leader. And that's that's true. And so much of my chapters for, uh, focused on how do you begin to develop this capability? And in my work with UNICEF, what we've been able to show is we can take young people from the humblest backgrounds who are utterly beaten down by life, uh, utterly lacking self-confidence and without talking using the word leadership we're very quickly through some interventions able to get them to um, start developing self-confidence and and leadership capabilities and then it tends to be transformational so i think the whole paradigm of who is a leader what is a leader what is leadership really urgently needs to change yeah i think you call it the most defining skill in uh, the 21st century as uh, the leadership skill, which I think is uh, true. And it makes so much sense in terms of, hey, it is not someone anoints you as a leader. And even leadership is a mindset, right? In terms of how you think about doing something and taking yeah. an action, having a bias for action, having... And, and learning to accomplish things without any formal authority, just by influence. Yeah. Okay, how do you do that? And I think that's going to be more and more important, both within organizations and also in the world at large. You know, almost all our work in companies now is cross-functional. Okay, uh, and you know, you have to get people across functions to work together. And they may say, "Yeah, well, why should I care, worry about Ravi?" You know, well, uh, sorry, there's a 300-year-old clock that's chiming. I can't hear it, so that's okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so they, they, they may ask, why should I follow Ravi? Why should I listen to him? And so the skill of get, of being able to inspire people um, who, who you should pra practically think of as volunteers to come together to accomplish something significant is one of the most important things in 
this century. You know, again, there's a piece in my book on this uh, project at Google when they where they looked at who are the most successful Googlers and what makes them successful. <laughs> and it turns out not to be the you know the the technical skills, which is what you might expect, but a whole bunch of soft skills which are correlated with leadership abilities. Absolutely, I think that's more important now than the hard skills which can be learned. By the way, that noise that you just heard, there, there is a there's a feature called noise suppression, so I'm glad that it's working in Teams. Ah, so okay. it's a background noise suppression, even if you have. A mixer or the clock that actually went it 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 just quelches uh, the noise so I'm glad fantastic to know it works that. yeah <laughs> cool um switching gears Ravi you went through multiple different professions and disciplines if you will and uh, you also talk about passion economy in uh, in your book right um, everyone says do what you love and what you're passionate about. Uh, but many a time, passion don't equate to pay. Um, how do you balance what you're passionate about and what is something that the world values? Or um, the whole Ikigai diagram, Venn diagram, if you will. Um, how have you navigated and is there a template for others to follow in terms of passion versus pay and opportunity? How do you think mm -hmm. about this? Well, why do I sort of like this idea of passion economy so much or Ikigai so much? Because I think we're living in a, at a time when the notion of a job and a, leading to a career is fading away. It's becoming obsolete. It's still relevant, but to fewer and fewer people. And why is that happening? Well, partly it's happening because of demographics. Many of us are living much longer. And you know, if you live till you're 75, 80, 90, and you want to work longer, well, sooner or later, organizations are going to lose interest in you and you have to learn to fend for yourself. Um, I think the world has also become much more uncertain and turbulent. So you can be in a fine job in a fine organization and boom, something happens. It's like musical chairs, the music stopped, you don't have a chair to <laughs> sit on. So generally speaking, the sooner you get to a point where you're building a life, a professional life uh, around what you're good at and enjoy doing and finding a way to get paid for it, the faster you can get there, the better. Okay. And it sounds easy and sometimes for some people it is. Um, but very often it's not, okay? And you have to work at it. So, you know, I look at myself, right? So fairly early I began, I'm a very reflective person. And so quite early I began to realize some things I'm good at, some things uh, I enjoy. So I'm quite good at, for instance, I'm mostly good at soft things, not hard things. So I'm quite good at sensing um, things. So it's a quality Satya talks about as empathy. Um, I'm very good at pattern recognition, connecting dots across disparate things. I'm good at learning new things. I'm good at, you know, in working with people. And then I look at what I like. I like solving very, very complex problems. I like ambiguity. Uh, I like getting people to stretch, whatever. 
So you put these together and well, you I self-select the kind of things I say yes to and I kind of self-select the kind of things I say no to. So what does that mean? So I found, for instance, I don't really enjoy execution. OK. Um, I find it boring. I could I do it. I've done it a lot, but it's like as a particularly as I've grown older, it feels like a tax. OK, so you feel it boring a, now or did you because you had to execute in the past, right? To get to where you I are. had to execute uh, in the past. And as you know, particularly in Microsoft, there's a it's fairly unforgiving execution. if you don't execute. <laughs> yeah. But but I didn't enjoy it. OK, and so by the time I turned 40, I, I used to grit my teeth a bit. And so I began naturally to move towards roles which were not execution heavy. OK, or I created roles where I could hire someone to partner with me on the execution side. So it's a very intentional decision. OK, um, and so. I've gradually moved towards opportunities, situations, etc., which play to my interests and strengths and away from the things that I'm not so good at. Um, I have not been a CEO now for 12 years. That's not an accident. OK, uh, I don't wish to be a CEO. I enjoy Do you miss being a CEO. Do you miss? Oh, well, yeah, there's some parts of it which are, you know, the adrenaline of being a CEO, is, which is very enjoyable. I miss, but mostly I don't. I now work as a coach to CEO, advisor to CEO, the chairman of a board where the CEO reports to me, whatever. So those kinds of things are very conscious decisions. And yeah, you've got to find a way to get paid for it. OK, it has to be a sustainable existence. Um, and so you better make sure that. Somebody sees value in it and um, and how you keep the value proposition fresh. So all I'd say is. You have to experiment to get there. OK, there's, I don't know, you know, any other way of uh, accomplishing this. The second thing I would say is rather than passion economy, I, you know, the word passion is a very deceptive thing. Follow your passion. Well, tomorrow you might cease to be passionate about it. OK, so I prefer to say follow your curiosity and and see where that leads. OK, and if I look at the thread of all the sort of apparently disconnected things I've done in my professional life, the threat has been curiosity. OK, and. Final thing I'd say is, yeah, if you're going to. Go down this path, you need to be willing to take risk. And the problem I see with a lot of really smart and successful people is they're afraid to take risk. So, you know, it's stunning to see the number of people in companies like Google or Microsoft or Amazon or whatever put in these terrific jobs and they're clinging to them. OK, and they're wistfully thinking about the passion economy and they're drawing these Ikigai diagrams, but not moving. <laughs> so you need to be able to act. You need to take some risk. Uh, yeah, talking about which, uh, I remember you distinctly talking about. When you were the chairman of Microsoft India. That was a pretty powerful, cushy job, right? Yeah, yeah. and did you struggle with? Hey, do I quit or this is this is great. This is you know you 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 are chairman of one of the largest 
companies in the world and uh, you know it's who's who in the company right well how hard was it and how did it you just, just it was incredibly hard um so you know it has so many benefits one is ah this big ego trip and you get invited to meet important people i used to go every year taking all the top indian ceos to bill gates ceo summit and have dinner at his house and Warren Buffett was there and Bezos was there and so you know hobnobbing with all those people the, the money was good then and it's probably way better today um and so you know it's it, these things are like golden handcuffs but as Steve Jobs said in his that famous Stanford speech of his if too many days in a row you get up and you're not enjoying what you do then it's time to do something different mm. and Finally, I, I decided to just like the bandaid, rip the bandaid off. I said, this, you know, just because I don't know what I want to do next doesn't is not good enough excuse to just stay on. And that's what I did in 2011, Srini. And this also brings me to an important point. Many times people will come to a, a point in their life but they hate what they're doing or know what it's time for change, but they don't know what next. Okay, and that becomes an excuse to sit around. And that's highly risky, Srini, because what happens is sooner or later, life's going to come and give you a kick in the butt. Okay, so you may think I'm, you know, I'll, you've got enough time to figure it out. You don't. So what I advise is get on with it and do these micro experiments to figure out your your new direction. And you can do a lot of these micro experiments without quitting. OK, so you don't have to. Jump off the ship and take undue risk because not everyone is lucky like me, to, the ability to take that risk. Many people have families to support and financial commitments and they may not be able to just jump off. Um, and so I, in the book, I talk about how you can still hold on and be doing th this discovery through micro experiments and find your new path. But it's not easy, and which is why so few people do it, attempt it. And the most important thing, I think, is to surround yourself with people who are going to give you confidence and support you as you experiment. OK, so this is what I talk about in terms of intangible assets. Absolutely, Ravi. I think uh, that concept of micro experiment, although I, 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 until I read your book, I, I didn't think about this in the context of those exact words. Um, but even this podcast in many ways is an, is an experiment of mine. Um, it's, yeah. I just do it for fun to learn, to try to learn from others in terms of, you know, it, it's just an experiment, but you're absolutely right in terms of figuring out and you can do all these experiments and figure out you don't have to just stick to one thing. Um, speaking it's of which, risky and, just stick to one thing. Yeah. And speaking of which, and you talk about. Leaving a pretty lucrative job for another venture, right? But eventually there has to be a number in your mind. Right, you talk about what is your number. You ask a very pertinent question, right? How much is enough? Yeah. Um, we all struggle with that quite a bit. I'm sure everybody struggles with that. I would like your take on that topic. Money is important. Still, how much of that is enough, and what's your number? 
how do you think about that? And I remember in her book, Becoming, um, in her book, Becoming, uh, Michelle Obama famously tells that she told her mother that she hated being a lawyer, right? And her mom said, make money first, worry about being happy later. Um, because it's uh, better to be a rich and unhappy versus poor and unhappy. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on what's your number and uh, how much is enough? Yeah, it's a great question. And again, I think it's a central question for a lot of us. So I devote a whole chapter, which I call um, how much is enough? OK, and in fact, uh, there's a famous Tolstoy short story which goes, uh, how much land does a man need? And I think it's very, very important for us to be intentional about this question and come to an answer. And I struggled a lot with it, okay, because I actually grew up my early years, Srini, uh, till we were, I was about 10, were very difficult financially, okay? So I grew up in an environment where we knew want. There was food, but not much else. And then things got better and so forth. But I, out of that experience came a real anxiety about being poor. <laughs> so, so there's that. Then there is also greed and insecurity. And today there is, you know, social media and media just so amplifies both insecurity and greed. You could be making a million a year and feel utterly sort of unsuccessful and dirt poor because somebody else is making 20 million or 500 million or whatever. Any number you have, somebody's making much more. So <clears throat> it's fairly important to apply yourself to this. And there is something, yeah, there is a fairly clear correlation between money and happiness up to $75,000 in US terms. And then after that, that correlation breaks down. So Michelle Obama's mom is right. There's clear evidence that says <laughs> until you get to a certain threshold level, you have too much anxiety and no dignity um, to be able to live a happy life. But after that, more doesn't necessarily equate to more satisfaction, more happiness, okay? But then what is that number? I also use that beautiful phrase that I lifted from someone else, which compares money to salt, which is too much or too little, both are problems. So you right. need to find what's just the right amount. And I think the way I answered it for myself is two things. First of all, what is your nest egg? And then what do you need in terms of ongoing income? Okay. And so for the nest egg, I was very insecure because look, all kinds of catastrophes can happen. Right now we're living through a catastrophe of a fairly big recession. Everybody's, you know, wealth is down 20, 25% at the very least. In some countries it's a lot worse. So stuff like this is gonna happen with more and more regularity. So I think the key to this is financial planning to look at what you, what lifestyle you have, how what you want to maintain, and then do some scenario planning or contingency planning and come up with a number. And then you can come up with the number and even do, I'm good, well, I'm going to do 3x this number. Then you find, I, at least I found, oh, I'm lucky. Because I'm fairly modest, that 
I'm already past the number. I cannot tell you what a psychological relief it was. OK, and if you haven't yet met your number and if you're in your 30s, you probably haven't yet then work towards that. OK, so that's one. The second thing is even more interesting. What do you need? On a monthly or annual basis to support your lifestyle? OK, and what's the minimum that you need to work to achieve that? There's a beautiful book which I talk about uh, in reference by a guy called Tim Ferriss. Um, fellow podcaster like you. Sure. He wrote a book called The Four and a Half Hour Work Week. Yep. And his point is for a lot of people of the sort who are listening to the, this conversation, you should be by now able to meet your ongoing expenses by working about half a day a week. And maybe that's extreme, but maybe still one day or even two days a week. So I looked at my number for what, what I need to do to live my life every month. And that includes drinking good wine, taking an occasional nice vacation. I love, you know, a I subscribe to a lot of things. I, you can't see, but I, everywhere here is a book. The place looks like a library. I like to buy these things. I'm modest, but not essentially not frugal. So you come up with that number and say, what is the minimum number of days I need to work? And shockingly, I make my that number by working one day a month. OK, wow. <laughs> OK, then the question is, what do you do for the other 29 days? <laughs> and yeah. what you realize is money is important. Primarily as freedom. OK, it buys you the freedom to live your life the way you choose without constraints. OK, and so that's why this question becomes so important. When your money becomes something beyond freedom, when it becomes a way of keeping score or feeling successful and all that, that's when it becomes toxic. OK, but money as freedom is, I think, a very central idea. Absolutely. I think it's freedom and security. I think those two things, yeah. right, which is rightfully yeah. said. But but the other problem is today's, you know, FOMO. So, yeah, you know, my mind also, you know, will go to, oh, well, shucks, if I had stayed on at Microsoft, this is how much I'd be worth now. OK, or if I was still a serving CEO of some public company these days, you know, 10 million is nothing. Then and so you start feeling bad because the mind plays these games on you. And then I ask myself, oh, OK, what would you do with that extra money? Okay, what what is it that you can't do with what you have today? And usually the answer is nothing. What I would do is have to find work even harder to give it away well. Okay, and so I've learned to ask myself this question, and then it you know goes. I I start feeling bad in about two to three minutes. <laughs> but this is the human human thing. Very true. It reminds me of a quote. Uh, from the Dalai Lama. That's one of my favorites, Ravi, which is he said man surprised me the most about humanity because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. And then he's so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he is going to die and then dies having never really lived. Which is 
yeah, it's beautiful and so true. And so that's really why I decided 10 years ago to walk a very unconventional path because there's no certainty that you're going to you know, live to 60 and then be able to do these things or, or you know, so I said, I'm not going to postpone living and that too for the sake of just making more money. Okay, so your question is a very central one and thank you for asking it. Sure. On, I mean, I have a related one too, uh, Ravi. I mean, because I'm, I'm sure you would have thought about this in terms of success, wealth and happiness. Is wealth equal to success, equal to happiness? If not, how do you measure, how does one measure their life, If uh, borrowing from Clayton Christensen, if you will, right? How do you measure your life? Um, and then there is also this notion of success addiction. We're all addicted to success. I think this is one of your terms as well, right? So, yeah, it's complicated. And again, I would, I'm going to encourage anyone listening or watching to read the book, chapter eight. So, look, everybody wants to be happy. Okay, every living person wants to be happy, not just humans, every sentient being. And but human beings, we have a theory of happiness. Now, we may not have, be able to articulate it. We may not have intentionally picked this theory of happiness, but we all have one. One of the most common is, is something I call the missing tile theory. The missing tile is you focus on the one thing that is not there in your life and say, if only I had that, I'd be happy. Okay, and that if only can be, if only I got into that college, if only I get into um, you know, a job at a great company, if only I get a promotion, if only I find the most beautiful person in the world to marry, if only this. And the problem is you fixate on that and once you get it, you trivialize it and it moves on to the next thing you don't have. And so you're always postponing happiness. Okay, so that's a very common one. I and a lot of other successful people had a different theory of happiness, equally problematic, which is, oh, success will make me happy. Okay, and the way you fall into this trap is um, when you're in early childhood and you do the right thing, you get the right grades at school, you do, and suddenly everybody loves you. Your parents love you more. You're more popular amongst other kids. The teachers, sh you know, show more uh, affection and interest and you get hooked onto it. And then you start saying, oh, I need to keep performing. And so as you leave school, you have to get into the most elite college. Then you have to get the most elite job. Then you have to get promoted faster than everyone else. You need to be a partner at McKinsey at age 31. You need to be a 40 under 40 list of Forbes. Uh, it's never ending. And then one day you realize, holy cow, I'm on this treadmill. I'm working harder than harder, uh, harder to be successful. And guess what? A, it's not make, giving me any happiness. And B, no matter how successful I am, somebody is wildly more successful. You know, yeah. you can say, oh, Ravi, how successful you are. Oh, yeah. Try comparing myself with Satya or Sundar Pichai or any one of these dudes makes me feel small. So there's no end to this. And this is something that uh, you know is called the hedonic treadmill. Yeah. So you have to figure out 
a bit more fundamental answer. Okay. And I realized three or four things. First of all, I realized that this idea of happiness is a very unreliable one. It's actually manufactured by the mind. Okay. Not everyone is aware of this, but you know, you can look at around you and you'll see that somebody who has every reason to be happy is miserable. Okay. And you look at somebody else who has no reason to be happy and they're just joyous. Okay. So what that tells you or should tell you is there's no correlation between what you have or, you know, success and happiness. So this is a synthetic thing and which means you better work on your mind. Okay. And that took me down a very nice path of meditation where I'm able to now dissociate my thoughts from how I feel about myself. Okay, so that's one. The second thing I've realized, uh, Srini, is this. The best way to be happy and joyous is to be fully absorbed in things that you enjoy. The moment there is spare bandwidth, the mind starts thinking about itself. And the moment it starts, you start thinking about yourself, you're unhappy. OK, because then you start thinking about, well, this is not right and that person is further ahead or whatever. So people say, look, Ravi, you're almost 60. Why are you so crazily busy? Why are you taking on new challenges at this time? And the truth is, it's an antidote to being unhappy. OK, I'm so busy and doing things I enjoy and with people I like that there's no time to think about myself and what's missing. Okay, so I think these are at least two of the principles which I think are important. I also think that increasingly we need to cultivate again what Dalai Lama calls a, a quality of acceptance. Okay, which is from time to time in life. Things are not going to go the way you want. Okay. And life is under no obligation to give you what you expect. Okay. And to be able to accept that even as you continue to strive is very important. And this is not easy. It's not easy for most of us. And so you have to work at it. Yeah. And the last point I want to say is for myself, so Christensen's question. So what does success and happiness really amount to for, for you then? And to me, I've come to believe that real success is freedom. Okay, I now am almost at the point where I get to choose how I spend my time, what I do with it, who I spend time with. I'm, all, I'm at a point where I don't really have to work for money. I'm at a point where I really don't care what other people think of me. Usually they're not thinking of me, which is a yeah. good thing. <laughs> OK, yeah. but but in my mind, I am more free than at any other point in my life. And to, to me, this feels. Like a fairly robust definition of success. Yeah, it's like the Confucius um, quote that said, right? Um, we have two lives. And the second one begins when we realize we only have one. So yeah, so that's a fantastic thing. Can I build on that? 
Sure, please. <laughs> See, one of my favorite quotes is by Mark Twain. And he says something really similar to Confucius. He says, there are only two days that matter in your life. The day you were born and the day you figure out why. <laughs> okay. Now, too many of us don't get to that second question. Okay, why? And there's this, uh, so for those of you who are intrigued by this, there's a nice book by a guy called David Brooks. It's called Second Mountain. He's a New York Times uh, columnist and in Second Mountain. I like that framing. We, the first mountain of our life is all about ourselves. Okay, you start out, you want to achieve, you know, make a success of yourself, start a family, be respected in society, live well, enjoy. That's the first mountain and it's an important mountain. Okay, you need to climb it in order to feel satisfied. But when you reach some somewhere near the peak, you begin to realize, wow, it doesn't really give me the same satisfaction anymore. And by the way, when I look out, there's a whole mountain range out there and there are much bigger peaks and there are guys already out there, guys and gals already out there. <laughs> so that's when you have to begin to think about, well, if this is not it, what is the next mountain? And you climb down. And you've figured out your second mountain, which is all about others. Okay. And you have to re redefine your life. And you may be doing the same thing. You could end sure. up doing the exact same job at Microsoft, but you bring a whole different mindset and quality to it because it's no longer about you. You're no longer competitive with the sharp elbows and playing all those political games. Oh, you're here doing the best job for the right reason, and it's a lot about the team, the company, the mission. Okay, so it's not about the what; it's it's how, what it's about you. How uh, so? I think this is a very very important transition, and usually you make it in your forties. You beautifully said, very well said, absolutely on the second mountain piece. I think I read it as well. Um, very well said, Ravi. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Um, Ravi, on the clarity piece, I wanted to touch on, you often talk about developing clarity in terms of what are you good at? What do you want to do? And uh, to touch on your other question, right? I mean, Mark Twain's, why? Why, why were you born? What was your journey like? Um, how did you arrive at that? clarity was it through a set of experiments or is it different things that brought you to the stage of having a level of clarity that worked for you throughout your journey yeah so look i th i think all of our life is really a quest for clarity or that's the way it should be okay and when you're young your understanding of the world is highly flawed and imperfect, and it's sort of like a blurry picture. But as you progress in age, things should become more sharply in focus, right? All these sort of questions, you know, why am I here? What is this life to be about? Or uh, also, what am I good at? How, how do I want to define success, um, um, etc.? The kind of person I want to be. So. In my book, I talk a lot about trying to become more intentional about these things. 
for a lot of us, we stumble through life and these things happen by accident. OK, and I think it's just. Important and wonderful if you're able to be intentional about these things. OK, so for instance, what is success? It's a moving target. OK, when you're young, you define it a certain way. As you get older, it changes definition. As you get to your 50s and 60s, it better have a more transcendent quality. So these are moving uh, definitions. And the, I think the way you get at it, the way I've got at it is a combination of things. One is experiments. So you take on these new adventures, these new crucible experiences, something happens to you and you try to process it and make sense of it. And you become clearer, OK? But if you're not experimenting and then reflecting, it doesn't happen. Okay, you're just like a bull in a china shop going to bang into something else. You don't want to live life that way. I think it's very important to read. I, you know, everything important about life and human existence has already been experienced, discovered, described, redescribed <laughs> many different ways over the last 3,000 years. Okay. So there's nothing that new that is happening to you. OK, <laughs> you're so, discovering it anew. <laughs> yeah. You're discovering it anew in in a fresh context of your life. OK, so I find it enormously interesting and useful and helpful to read widely and that to across different philosophies and traditions and so forth. So that that's I think a big part of cl achieving clarity. And I think meditation is really important. Meditation doesn't mean you know, necessarily sitting cross-legged with the eyes closed and focusing on your breath. Sure, that's one form of meditation. But meditation is essentially anything that allows you to in consciously put some distance between your chattering mind and that constant stream of thoughts and you. And gradually you're able to see a yourself as an observer of that chatter and the stream of thoughts. When you're able to, through whatever practice, get there, clarity emerges. OK, so. You know, Buddha says, how can you have see your own reflection in the pool if you're constantly splashing around? <laughs> OK, unless you stand still. still and allow the water to calm down, you can't see your reflection. So you can't have clarity if you're just thrashing about and your mind is thrashing about. You have to work at making it still. So how do you do that? Well, somebody loves music, so you play music. And in that moment, you lose yourself in, in, in that. There's a certain dissociation with your thoughts. That's meditative, okay? Somebody else is going for a long run and that endorphin rush happens and suddenly you're no longer thinking about all the stuff you're in the moment. It's called flow. OK, yeah. so yeah, these are different approaches, techniques, practices, and you have to do all of it. But then if you're lucky, things begin to come into focus. Got it. Thank you, Ravi. Ravi, I know we are a little past time. Uh, time for one or two more questions before we wrap. Of course. 
Um, the one question that I have is, have you had any role models or mentors throughout your life? You talk about mentors as well. Um, who are a couple of your mentors who have been most influential to you? Um, also, any advice to people who are starting off their career in terms of what, how do you, do they seek mentor? Do they mentors come to you, come to them? What, what any thoughts on how, how can they get started? So I'd say, first of all, role models and mentors are not always the same. So I've had any number of role models. Okay, I would say my earliest role model was my dad, who was just a remarkable human being and a remarkable scholar. So I would say he's big influence. My wife Sonali is a huge influence because more than anybody else I know, she lives her principles. Um, and, you know, inspires me in that way. I would say another role model would be, yep, Bill Gates and also Narayan Murthy. So I was just so lucky, Srini, that I got to work fairly closely with two of the greatest entrepreneurs of the last century, right? One started Infosys, one started Microsoft. And you begin to see what makes them so extraordinary, okay? And there's some qualities which I am, try to emulate. One is this bringing intensity to whatever you do, okay? The, it's not necessarily that these people are smarter than you or someone else. It's the, the level of intensity they bring to anything is just like five orders of magnitude greater. So I, I, I love that, um, the extraordinary curiosity about everything. So I would say, yeah, that's... And then I my role models are ordinary people who in some ways are better human beings than I. So I look at the guy who drives our car, okay? A guy called Wahid. And he's, you know, there's a lot of stuff that happens in his life because he's, you know, middle of the pyramid or lower middle of the pyramid and he's Muslim and, th yeah, not easy. But he's always calm, always smiling, never rattled. His son got cancer for two years, six-year-old, and wasn't sure he was going to live or die. So I said, I want to be like that. So these role models are not all big, successful people. They're just people I say, all walks that's, a of life. that's a quality I wish to emulate. Mentors, well, again, I, I talk about that in the book. Much of whatever success I've had, I owe to men mentors who, you know, either opened doors for me or were helpful to me in, at some point in my life. They're like angels who come into your life and, you know, do something amazing. So we should all be so lucky. The thing I would say about mentors is don't go asking for a mentor, okay? Some people come to me and say, oh, will you be my mentor? I feel like running away <laughs> because, no, I find it onerous and some, you know, other people will also find it onerous to be a mentor. But if you say, look, I'd really like your advice on this. I'm happy to give it. So I never went and said, will you be my mentor? I simply engaged people in 
ways that you know were interesting or sensible to both of us and yeah it became a mentoring relationship so that's what i'd say what's my advice to somebody starting off well the most important advice i have is look it's i know it's not fashionable to say it today it's almost politically incorrect but i think intensity is important if you're going to achieve anything in life if you need to excel okay and you cannot excel without being intense and working super hard at it okay there's all this stuff today about oh work life balance quiet quitting this that and the other you know that's fine if you're not happy you should find something else that makes you happy but then be intense about it so uh, that's how you build character that's how you build a reputation that's how you build skills and you know that leads to better and better things you talked about uh, being a learn it all versus a know it all i think that's incredibly important not just starting out in life but it's a quality you have to retain even when yeah. you're 18 yeah. okay so yeah just be, retain your childlike curiosity about everything um and be intentional so yeah that's the gratuitous advice i would give to some, <laughs> someone Yeah, no yeah. those are pretty awesome ones ravi thank you on the last one right um i do know and see the whole there is this new generation post pandemic generational shifts in terms of people who want privileges of an employee but not responsibilities in some cases right i think there is there is some shift when you talk about work life well being do you feel that there is an over indexing on that front in certain areas that needs correction yeah that's a very complex topic and my next podcast at uh, in okay. 15 <laughs> minutes is actually looking at this at unpacking this issue but fundamentally i think both employers and individuals need to change okay um employers have to figure out how to you know not use compliance yeah led approach but more a commitment driven approach um today there's a lot of talk about how do we use technology ai monitoring keystrokes etc look scraping your social media to decide hmm are you a high risk at quitting uh, have you actually slowed down um or whatever i think that's a really bad idea personally you have to figure out how to create an environment which inspires people to come in and want to do better that's the employer side but equally i think there is some number and i think it's a minority of people and there's a tendency to want to ascribe it to sort of the younger generation that wants the privileges of being an employee without the responsibility I don't know if it's necessarily generational I don't know I don't have data sure. evidence but I do think there's some 10% 20% of a that population that may wish this and during the pandemic were able to enjoy that and I'd say to them look you can't have your cake or eat it too it's perfectly fine to say I'm not all in on my job I want to do many things and in my book I say that's great well that's called being learning to be self employed sure and yeah. 
So you approach your work assignments as consulting projects, and then you have this other interest and you can indulge that. Figure out how to quickly get to that state. But if you want the privileges of an employee, which means there's a commitment to you and your career, investment in your learning, your growth, um, being part of a you know community, etc., then you, it requires a reciprocity of commitment. So um, it's not going to work any other way. You may get away with it for a short period of time because of the supply demand mismatch on skills and so forth, but the biggest the price is going to be paid by you eventually. OK, so you know. This is a longer topic, but I don't think you can have your cake and eat it too. Got it. To make choices. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank I know you. there is so much to cover in such a short time. Uh, we could go on, but thank you for being on the show. Uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity and enjoy the conversation. Also to know and talk to you, hopefully to be continued. Uh, best wishes on your next great experiment. <laughs> and any final thoughts? No, I my final thoughts are Look, this feels like a very difficult moment in the world. OK, all around you, there's really bad stuff happening, whether it's the war in Ukraine or whether it's the polarization in every country or climate change, whatever. This just it feels like a somewhat dark moment. And my approach has been to try and create a bubble of positivity around me and not worry about these so much about these big things. OK, uh, you know, there's nothing I can do about the war in Ukraine. OK, there's just nothing. So I don't spend too much time obsessing about those things. I look at what it is I can do around any of these issues. I look at how do I create positivity around me and that allows me to stay positive. I suggest that more of us should perhaps think about that. On that note, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate it again. Yeah, take care, Srini. It was fabulous. Uh, you asked wonderful questions, and I'm 